Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. China's Xi Jinping has warned Beijing will go after the so-called platform companies that have amassed data and market power. It's a sign that the crackdown on the country's internet sector may just be at the start of things. Which companies are likely to be most affected by regulatory changes? It used to be big was good. There are apparently downsides to being large. China's main stock benchmark, the CSI, narrowly avoided a technical correction. Investors hunting for bargains, apparently, while looking at clues from the National People's Congress that began last Friday. So the risks of possible asset bubbles on China's main stock benchmark has that been addressed. Next, we look at India reportedly planning a law banning cryptocurrencies. What do investors make of these risks? Restrictions and where once Bitcoin has been hailed, where once it was hailed as a digital currency, digital answer to currency actually is still being debated, right? Is Bitcoin the digital answer to currency or is it not? There's a new acronym that we all have to get used to NFTs, non fungible tokens. They're now being touted as a digital answer to collectibles. So, what is an NFT? Who's making money off them? Why are they doing so well? First up, let's say welcome to Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. And first up, Mr. Pai, happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to ask you, are you feeling that when you wake up on Monday that it feels like Friday is coming around much sooner than Monday? <laughs> you know, age, right? Like, what to do with it? But, oh, well, it is what it is. Uh, life could be a lot worse, but, uh, you know, so far, so good. Honestly, okay. I'm very grateful that I'm living in Singapore. Oh, that's great to hear. I hope your birthday went spectacularly. Now, the reason I asked whether you felt the week was passing by you blisteringly fast was because I innocently mentioned that to a friend, and she said, oh, this means you're aging rapidly, Michelle, because the older you get, the faster it feels like time is flying by. <laughs> Wiser words have never been spoken. Okay, <laughs> and so, so true. <laughs> yep. Oh, gosh. All right. Uh, welcome to the show, everybody. Arun Pai helping us understand what's happening in markets. Let's start with what sh- has happened in China. President Xi Jinping uh, saying regulation is needed to close loopholes. Beijing cracking down on platform companies. You know, that's a broad brush label for anything from companies to do with social media businesses to e-commerce. Uh, we have seen so far, a uh, crackdown on Jack Ma's empire. The Ant Group forced to halt its IPO in Hong Kong and Shanghai. Alibaba slapped with a fine back in December. And then there are, are new reports that the crosshairs of regulators could turn their focus on other tech firms as well. So my question for you, Arun, is in light of what has been happening, which companies do you think are likely to be affected? I mean, talk about broad brush strokes, right? Like when he starts uttering the word uh, questioning social stability because of these companies, he, he definitely means business. And we could clearly see that in terms of share prices co- correcting off pretty much all the really large tech slash platform slash e-commerce, pretty much across the spectrum. Basically, any company that starts gaining too much 
clout in the business space can potentially be a threat to the NPC, uh, through the party. And that's something that, uh, you know, President Xi will obviously definitely not stand for, just given the way China is set up. It's all the control has to be in the center mm-hmm. and be it provinces, be it uh, subsidiary like state government and or for that matter, even corporates, like even privately traded or publicly traded companies. So from that regard, mm-hmm. I think the brunt of this is going to be like the repercussions of this is going to be felt across the spectrum. Any company that's larger than, say, like, you know, $50 billion is going to have a lot more governmental uh, like regulatory eyes peeking into its books, trying to see what it's doing and trying to analyze and see how they can try and clamp that down. Now, to me, like I, I split this regulatory aspect into, into two groups. Mm-hmm. First and for, foremost is the financial, right? And overall, I think this is actually a good thing because no country, and we saw what happened to the U.S. back in 2007, the great financial crisis, uh, obviously Iceland, Ireland, uh, the U.K., EU, you name it, like countries across the board, when you let the financial system or the financial companies run amok, it causes huge systematic problems, not just on Wall Street, but on Main Street also. So I think from that regard, trying to clamp down on these lending platforms to ensure that when you've attained a certain size and you do become a systemic risk to the economy, then you have to start being regulated, comparable to that of what banks are happening right now. And that's exactly what, you know, even Piyush was highlighting, Piyush being DBS's CEO, even he was highlighting that, right? Like you can't just let the traditional banking system having all sorts of regulatory clampdowns, but fintech companies just acting as platforms can run amok. So from that regard, I think that's a very good long-term stabilizing aspect that will hopefully give a lot more comfort to external investors to start looking into China a lot more and start investing a lot more. The other problem, though, is the platform uh, side of things. By platform, I mean like non-tech. This could involve like e-commerce, logistics, and there are a whole host of companies in China, mm. like JD.com, for example, that's mm. not so prevalent in the financial space. But what have they been doing and have they gotten too big for their own good? And we kind of started seeing like hints of that where, uh, you know, the government clamped down on Alibaba for the media investments, where they've been told to now to divest from they own uh, SCMP, they own a whole host of other news uh, media outlets. And they're clamping down on this aspect. And this is something that can go two ways, right? One is clamp down on unfair monopolistic attitudes, uh, 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 egregious pricing to ensure that, you know, people stay within their ecosystem. Checkbox, completely understand why a government, be it China or even for that matter, the U.S., which is looking into Facebook and Google, why they're going to do that. Completely makes sense. The problem, though, is where do you draw that line to ensure it's a relatively free and fair market economy, the mm-hmm. dynamics that take place, vis-a-vis stifling creativity and entrepreneurship. I don't think we are anywhere close to that just yet in China, but, you know, time will tell. Yeah, you know, investors are really scrambling, aren't they, to understand how this recent policy tightening is going to affect the internet economy in China, which so many investors want to pile into. Um what do you see investors' response so far? How would you characterize it? 
I mean, there is a certain amount of fear, right? Like mm. for the first time, the state uh, uh, state bank had to get involved in terms of like propping up shares like last week. Uh, you highlighted in the beginning of the show that we're going to be talking about the CSI 300 index. Mm. That had a relatively sharp correction. And had the state government not like intervened and like at least given some kind of stability to it, we could have been in a little bit of a different situation right now. So in that regard, I think it's very right that when, especially in a country like China, if the government gets involved and wants to try and downsize these companies, rest be assured, they're going to execute that and they're going to make it happen. There is no concept of like an independent judiciary where, you know, companies can go there and try and like fight against the government. It just doesn't exist there. Mm. So rightfully so, investors took a little bit of chips off the table and said, let's take a wait and see approach to what the next government regulation is going to be. All right, let's look at the CSI 300. That's China's main stock benchmark. Entered a correction earlier this week on concerns about valuations being lofty, uh, liquidity conditions. The CSI 300 falling 3.5%. It peers through its 100-day moving average. Uh, So do you think that these concerns of uh, liquidity and valuations, possible asset bubbles, has that been addressed? I think it was a little, uh, my personal take is, it was a little bit less of maybe liquidity and valuation, but a lot more of this government regulation aspect. Right. And the CSI 300 obviously being the largest, it's a capitalization uh, weighted index, which basically means the 300 largest companies across Shanghai and Shenzhen Exchange forms this index. Now, what do we know? We know that the government is looking to actively clamp down on these large conglomerates that are formed in China. So naturally, you know, this index will bear the brunt of uh, a potential downward trend, which is what we've been seeing. That being said, though, you know, at the levels of right now, give or take like 5,100, we've just gone back to what it was at the start of the year, right? So it's not like this has been a truly like a massive correction, which people need to be a lot more concerned about, like say, the global financial crisis or the huge uh, liquidity event when day traders got stopped out across the board a couple of years back in China. This is just things like resetting a little bit, I feel, uh, trying to see and assess what the government is going to do. And while at the same time, sure, you know, it's come off, it's uh, pretty much all-time highs, it's stabilizing a little bit more over the past couple of days. And th- does it give, uh, you know, like scary headlines because of the sheer velocity of the move? Yes. But as I said, right, it's just gone back to the level it was two and a half or three months ago. I think it's really a lot more about assessing whether these large companies, in what shape and form they're going to come out post all of this regulatory change. And the way President Xi, at least, was speaking, there definitely is going to be regulatory change. The flip side, though, like some kind of tailwind to Chinese equities, is what Ray Dalio came out with a couple of days back in his letter. Buy everything. And he was, yeah, buy, buy everything. Buy things. Buy, that's right. Like, don't buy bonds. Do not keep money in cash. You and do not stay long the U.S. dollar. Right. So, right. any large money manager, like, and this is, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, people who uh, have assets under management of more than say like ten or twenty billion dollars. Okay, U.S. kind of like check it off the list or keep a certain amount of allocation to that. Who do I go to next? Who is the second largest economy? 
who's come out of this crisis relatively unscathed, or should I say, a lot better than the rest of the world, that's China. So as long as the government keeps loosening capital controls to some extent, which it already has, it becomes the perfect avenue for a lot more capital to be deployed in that region. So from that respect, I think long-term-wise, the index should do okay, and so should, like, you know, well-performing companies in China. Okay, good to know. Um, Let's switch over to India, which will reportedly introduce a bill to make owning cryptocurrency against the law. It's going to potentially criminalize trading, the mining, the issuing, the transferring, even possessing cryptocurrency. Now, if this bill is passed, this sweeping ban, this will make India um, home to some of the world's strictest digital currency laws. What do you make of these restrictions? You know, honestly, this has always been the biggest fear when it came to thinking of Bitcoin as an investment uh, vehicle to park your assets, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something, honestly, that I have not been able to wrap my head around, which is not that India is doing such stringent measures. How are other governments across the world not doing the same? And, And the reason I say that is because this is an asset class that is there pretty much either for speculative returns or on the other side, the actual use cases has been for illegal, nefarious activities. Right? There are all sorts of articles about how Bitcoin is the currency, quote-unquote, of choice in the dark web for be it drugs or smuggling or other, like, uh, you know, selling of arms, etc. So f- from that regard, it's been a bit surprising that countries... Uh, like especially like India and China, where capital controls are a lot are a much bigger concern than the say the more freer economies of Europe and the US, how they have not tried to clamp this down. And most of the Bitcoin mining in the world is coming out of China right now. So it's honestly been a bit surprising to me since uh, you know the dawn of Bitcoin becoming such a mainstream topic. And, and let's take another example of the speculatory aspect of this, right? Mm. All of this uh, U.S. $1,400 stimulus checks. There have been some studies done where apparently close to half of the money for that's being given as these paychecks is going to be used for investment purposes, mm-hmm. not to uh, you know spend money in the economy and try to like you know reset it and try to bring it back onto the growth trajectory. It's for investment purposes, and within that investment purpose, close to 60 percent. So a majority of that amount is going to be used to be invested into Bitcoin specifically. And that really is, you know, it, it's pretty amazing, right? Because you're in a economy that is slowing down. Uh, things are not going well for families, especially the non-affluent ones in the U.S., because they're bearing, you know, a huge brunt of the COVID uh, pandemic. And the government stimulus checks are going to be taken and going to be pumped into Bitcoin for the hope that it's going to go up in two or three months, and then they'll figure out what to do with that extra money. That's something that should be quite concerning to the U.S. government and, for that matter, governments across the board. So you see India leading the way, perhaps, in, in what is inevitable of more states sitting up wondering, you know, what do we do regulation-wise with crypto assets? I, I, I mean, you know, 
I'm not sure if governments across the board will think that way, but mm. definitely governments that have capital controls, mm-hmm. this becomes such an easy leak for capital, yeah. right? Like if I'm sitting in China and I'm not allowed to even take money and go to a casino in Macau, I can go through some intermediaries, mm. convert that into Bitcoin, mm. and then get it transferred anywhere in the world without basically any KYC check. Like how is that going to be possible as and when this gets more and more mainstream. So my thought process to this is, these countries are going to be the first ones that will come out with their own digital currency equivalent. And then they'll go back to all these, like the public as a whole and say, if you thought, you know, you wanted to use Bitcoin for the purposes of uh, streamlining the way of like transferring money at like low cost and all of that, voila, here you go. Here's our digital coin. You can deal with this going forward. We're going to stop the use of this Bitcoin thing that is not Bitcoin, Ether, and I'm talking about like all cryptocurrencies, obviously, hmm. like across the board, because, uh, you know, uh, there's no way for me to know if this is going to be used for illicit uh, uh, transfers or like uh, illicit requirements. And from that regard, I, I don't see how these governments will not clamp down on this. It's not happened yet, yeah. but it is a big question mark to me at least. Yeah, and then, you know, then the question becomes who wants to be left out of the club if everybody is still in the club where blockchain and crypto assets are de rigueur, so to speak. I mean, look at what's happening with NFTs. Let's talk about NFTs right now. Um, Digital-only artwork sold at Christie's, says the headline, for £50 million. And the winner not going to receive sculpture, painting, not a print. They're going to get a unique digital token that's known as NFT. So, you know, people are comparing NFT to Bitcoin, saying, well, Bitcoin's seen as the answer to currency. NFTs now seen as the digital answer to collectibles. So uh, even... Elon Musk is getting in. Of course, he'd get in on NFTs, <laughs> right? I, what is he, the techno king right now? And he's selling a song that he says uh, is a... He says he's selling a song about NFTs as an NFT. Let's have a listen. song I have to say I mean I like the beat I'm not sure if there's a narrative there Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, let me spare everybody. Uh, NFT for your vanity. Computers never sleep. It's verified. It's guaranteed. So that's what Elon Musk. That's his song, by the way. He's released a techno song. And he's already got an offer for it that he's turned down. Uh, apparently a million dollars offered for that song as a non-fungible token. Arun, help us out. How do NFTs work? Who's making money out of NFTs? Sure thing. So as much as my, uh, not hatred, I would say, but distrust towards the concept of Bitcoin, I think NFTs is something actually extremely interesting. Mm. So NFTs is like, it's a unique cryptocurrency token used to reproduce assets, right? It could be digital art. It could be music, as you just played. By the way, a song that was listened to over 5 million times, might I add. Uh, Anything basically uh, under the sun. Right. So from that and even tweets like uh, Elon Musk's tweet, I think uh, Jack Dorsey sold his first tweet on Twitter also uh, via the NFT thing. Mm -hmm. So from that regard, uh, you know, it's a really interesting way to digitize 
a real asset. And then because of the uh, ironclad security of uh, blockchain being a decentralized digital ledger, we can document and validate every transaction and the history of the ownership of this asset can be vouched for, which leads, you know, like this whole aspect of like fake art, you know, and there's some really cool documentaries on Netflix about how $80 million of fake art was being sold through a very reputable art gallery in uh, New York, because this whole concept of like prominence of knowing where the, from the painter to the next seller to the following seller, like that entire history of sale Mm -hmm. takes place very actively when you go out and buy like one of these crazy $5 million, $10 million painting. Through Mm -hmm. NFTs, this can be done in an extremely cost-effective manner for something as small as like a $200 baseball card so from that aspect you know it's just taking like again you know taking this real asset putting it onto the blockchain buy and sell this thing till the end of time and you'll be able to know and track where it came from which is very very powerful to ensure that corruption and like any fakes or forgeries does not get mixed into this process and most importantly or at least at least from the perspective of the creator of that uh, asset, they can always have some kind of a percentage of the transacted price be accrued to them. So when the creator, say, creates, be it like this music video, or they have their own tweet and they sell it, sure, they get the full proceeds of it. But then as and when that asset keeps getting transacted in the future, instead of there being a transaction cost of like an auction house taking a certain percentage of it, In this case, the creator of the asset will keep getting or potentially can keep getting a certain amount of money too, which is great for, you know, upcoming artists. Uh, And there are like some really famous uh, music bands that have now come out saying that they're going to be doing the exact same thing. We're going to be selling our albums through NFTs and thereby they can accrue most of the profit rather than the intermediaries. And that's the beauty of the decentralized digital ledger. It's secure, it's safe, you can validate everything. And so, you know, when it comes to blockchain technology as a whole, this is a fantastic use case of the beauty of this. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, as I highlighted earlier, Mm. I'm not so sure. I think that has to be something that has to be regulated and uh, governments, I believe, really should clamp down on that. So do you think artists and, and sellers, artists are generally going to be at the center of this uh, valuable NFT network? I think, uh, you know, in a utopian uh, view of the world, mm. I think that would be the case. The sad mat- fact of the matter is, unless you're someone really, really famous, you can get around trying to find an intermediary or a certain, you know, fintech startup or a platform where you can market this. I think for most of the other artists, they will still have to go through an intermediary. They will still have to go through, be it an auction house or these platforms mm. where they can get that kind of like eyeball reach. And by that, I mean like potential buyers looking to buy their asset. But the advantage is, you know, corruption goes away. Forgery goes away. They can get a certain percentage of all the future sales. So from that regard, I think artists are one segment that will benefit a lot from this. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, collectors, obviously, because these are people who've been like storing, securing like these potentially prized uh, valuables, 
they're going to be finding a lot more liquidity for this in the market. So, you know, great for them. And from more of an investor's point of view, mm. people, you know, who do not sadly have these kind of really rare collector items, mm -hmm. there are a lot of fintechs out there where currently private, but I'm sure they'll be going public over the course of the next six months or year to take advantage of these really frothy public markets where investors can get involved with, in which, you know, you have all these platforms out there that are actively looking to sell these NFTs. I think, you know, Mark Cuban's invested in a couple of them. Mm -hmm. And there are some really, like, good marquee names out there, which are seeing a lot of attention from buyers. Right. And that's fantastic. I actually know a Singaporean lawyer who tells me that he's been advising on numerous NFT transactions and NFT structures as well. In fact, I'm going to get him on the show uh, to share more about his experience. So, And then I'll ask him a key question. How, how can we NFT Arun's first show with us? <laughs> as long as I'm the creator or part creator and I can take a percentage cut out of it by all means Michelle <laughs> best of luck alrighty then thank you as always for joining us Arun my pleasure thank you so much for having me he's Arun Pai Chief Strategy Officer at Flow with us here in Money and Me before acting on the information on Money FM please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.